1: Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Daily Brussels Playbook column. Most of the action this week has taken place outside of Brussels, with an EU-Africa summit in Côte d'Ivoire, a war criminal suicide in court in the Netherlands, and more Brexit drama. But one thing did keep cropping up here in the EU capital, the controversial weed killer glyphosate. So while negotiators inch towards Brexit trade talks, and President Trump rants more than ever on Twitter, we'll stay in the weeds this week. It's hard for me to pick the most fascinating aspect of the EU's drawn-out decision to renew the licence for the sale of glyphosate for five years. That's five years too much for many green activists and a group of powerful countries, including France and Italy, who also have an alternative to glyphosate that they'd love to see succeed in the market. And it's 10 years too little for the companies that make and sell glyphosate. Is the debate a sign that science and politics will now be intertwined in complicated ways? And what does it mean that a German minister went rogue and proved to be the swing vote that achieved victory for the pro-glyphosate forces? We're going to cover all that and more in back-to-back interviews with European Commissioner for Health, Vitanus Andrakaitis and the head of the European Food Safety Authority, Bernard Ull. Our regular podcast panel returns this week to discuss that rogue German minister, a collection of heartwarming mental health initiatives, and to help a would-be EU official who passed a competitive entrance exam only to be booted out of the EU system. Now it's time to hear from the Commissioner for Health. Well, joining me here in the studio is Commissioner Andrew Kytus, who is the Health Commissioner of the European Union. Thanks for joining us, Commissioner.
3: Hello. Yes, I am very happy to be together with you and to answer your questions.
2: And what the listeners can't see, but which I can see, is this very big smile on your face, because just 20 minutes ago you've walked out of the meeting of the national government experts, and I hear there is now... Uh, majority in favor of renewing the glyphosate license for the next five years. That's the, the uh, weed yes. killer that some organizations and countries wanted to block. But uh, that's yes. a big success for you. Uh,
3: yes, we achieved qualified majority. We have majority of countries and majority of vote, but it was not enough. And now we achieve qualified majority. It means that uh, decision was made now. And that's it's very important that our promise was that we have no appetite to adopt alone at at Commission College level, mm-hmm. without a qualified majority of countries. And now, and who
2: changed their mind? How did you get over the finish line?
3: I think that last two weeks were very helpful because uh, we have a lot of debates, and especially we have debates with uh, citizens initiating group. And it was a very good time to raise questions, to understand their worries and to explain in more details. And it also helps member states to look deeply into substance and to also have a good opportunity to present their views. Mm -hmm. And we reflect on their views. We once again proposed compromise, new compromise amendments.
2: And that was around the five year yes, renewable.
3: And of course it was around the five year renewal. renewable. Of course it was around possibilities to strengthen transparency issues to discuss with WHO about possibilities to look at methodologies between WHO agencies and European Union agencies to try to build common strategy of risk communication risk management and of course also speaking about possibilities to strengthen transparency and avoid conflict of interest and of course also to discuss issues related to confidentiality clause mm-hmm. okay and, and of course biodiversity all issues were reflected and I'm proud that we achieve quite a good compromised balanced decision
2: And do you worry there may be some further backlash now? You were worried about being taken to court if there wasn't an approval. Could some of the NGOs, the green groups who were opposed to this, could they now pursue you in the court?
3: I am, you know, frankly speaking, I see good opportunity to continue our discussions because from my point of view, our arguments are very strong based on science. I'm sure that Today's decision is quite balanced and very well equipped with serious arguments.
2: Now, the original reason we scheduled to have this interview was to talk about the state of health in the EU and the new report card that you've got out. So I was wondering if you could introduce that a little bit for our listeners, because I know that at the national level... Health is really almost the biggest element of the national budgets these days, and obviously it's a big political priority if you're a national minister. But at the EU level, you don't have budgets or legal powers that are so big. So are these reports important for pushing this at the European level? But,
3: but please look, what does it mean glyphosate? It means public health concerns, yes? Mm-hmm. Because when we are speaking about food safety, mm-hmm. we are speaking about people's health. When we speak about environmental determinants, or for example, climate change in Paris Agreement, we are speaking about health issues. When I'm speaking about sustainable development goals, please look at those goals mm-hmm. and how many challenges at global level. It means that public health and health must be addressed at EU level also, using public health evidence-based instruments. Mm -hmm. Of course, those instruments are in all sectors. Why Lisbon Treaty enshrined health in all political sectors?
2: Are the national governments listening was my question.
3: Yes, our report status of health of the EU is a good opportunity to understand more deeply, more concretely what is on the ground in every Member states. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, one thing that really jumped out at me in the report was that statistic that only 3% of the health budget is spent uh, on preventative measures, and around 80% is spent on treatment of diseases and conditions. You know, it made me wonder, is that partly because the burden for prevention is on people personally? You know, if I join a sports club or a gym, I pay for that out of my own money rather than out of a national budget. Or are we really bad at allocating resources and are heading for a big problem as the population ages, as we really struggle to find the people to be the carers and the health professionals?
3: uh uh-huh. You can ask member states to provide very active preventative instruments in real life, addressing, for example, children obesity issues. And it is about nutrition, education, about physical activity, about behavioral changes. Also, it's about possibility to regulate market in supermarkets. Mm-hmm. If you look at shelves, and when are sweets, uh, you know, disseminated, on level of children's eyes. Why? Yep. Because it's marketing approach. Mm-hmm. And it means that members have the right to regulate those issues.
2: Who's doing the best?
3: It's not about blaming and shaming, no. Mm-hmm. It's not about ranking of member states because it's impossible, because it's, it's useless. Mm-hmm. But it is very important. Those reports were built first time in the EU based on Eurostat statistical Data. Mm-hmm. It means that statistic is from member states. Second, it based on the same methodology.
2: Do you find them open to learning from others, or they are a bit defensive and wanting to uh, do it their don't own I do not know because
3: we just, you know, we just presented our our report mm-hmm. and our profiles, mm-hmm. and we sent those reports to all governments. And this and is now the first or the second version. It's, it's the first the because, first because okay. mm-hmm. now we have portrait of every member state based on their data. We have good opportunity to understand much better member state situation and addressing the issues related to macroeconomic or structural reforms, which helps us to be more precise in our recommendations.
2: In the report, you were saying there are already 18 million healthcare professionals in Europe, which must make it one of if not the biggest sector of the workforce already, but we need two million more in the yes, next 10 in, years. In
3: the next few years, until mm. 2025.
2: And, and does that mean you do a lot of work with people like Commissioner Tyson, the Employment Commissioner, and yes. the universities and the technical colleges but to get it, that ready? It, it
3: means that we need to encourage member states to discuss healthcare workforce planning. And, of course, uh, motivation of younger generation. Mm-hmm. We have uh, challenges with general practitioners because of age of general practitioners mm-hmm. also very high. In some countries, we have average of age 56, 62 years. Why? Wow. Because youngest generation do not like to be general practitioners. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have idea to be very high-developed would... specialists okay. because, of course, prestige mm-hmm. And second is more attractive working places because it's, you know, more technologies and so on. And, of course, also possibilities to stay in bigger cities. Mm -hmm. General practitioners' workplace Mm -hmm. must be equipped with very modern technologies which will attract young people. They must
2: also be quite high job satisfaction for general practitioners because you have that social element. You know, my own mother, she's been with the same general practitioner for 40 years, and so she has a bond. I mean, she sees him more than she sees me. That maybe is a yes, factor yes, that would yes, drive people to of be part of Of course, we world.
3: need to present new incentives.
2: Now, one other area on a completely different topic, but that I'm very fascinated about whenever I see an article or a television program on it, and it's the idea of personalised medicine, and it also seems like that's quite a lot of research and development. It's a very expensive innovation to be involved in. Uh, do you think Europe can afford to go down that track, or, or maybe it can't afford to ignore it because of no, the huge no, impacts? No, that no, it could no,
3: have? no, no, no ignorance. It would be a big mistake. But here, I would like to draw your attention on our activities now. Mm. We launch European Reference Network this year on March. It means that we joined together more than 300 hospitals in 26 member states. Mm-hmm. Now we launched an IT platform which can help us to connect mm-hmm. from Lisbon to Helsinki. And it means that we have a good opportunity to collect clinical trials, mm-hmm. to encourage our universities, academia, in private sector industry to join forces and to create consortiums Mm -hmm. addressing issues related to advanced therapies. What does it mean advanced therapy? We need to have registries. We -hmm. need to have big data. Mm -hmm.
2: So I I have two questions on that front. Um, I guess the political one, then the personal one. So at the political level, are you confident that hospitals and all the other care networks that you deal with, that they're ready for the general data protection regulation next year? Or are there going to be some difficulties in, in getting people?
3: Generally speaking, of course, picture is very mixed one. You see some very advanced hospitals, very advanced university clinics, and, of course, some quite uh, reluctant. It's not so easy to see, you know, in 2018, I count a lot on European Reference Network success, and then it will help us to disseminate our best practices.
2: And now one final question, because I know you're a busy man, so I'll let you go in just a second. But it was obviously a very exciting week over the last week with the decision around the European Medicines Agency and it moving from London to Amsterdam after Brexit. How are you feeling about that process now that you can look back on it and the excitement has died down?
3: Frankly speaking, I decided to go to London now Mm -hmm. because now we know in which city we can move. And technically, I know I have very big number of papers, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. We need to discuss those issues with our team and mm-hmm. with Emma people and it is Emma staff. Because we need to, to show our responsibility, and then yeah. I will immediately uh, discuss those issues with Netherlands government. Mm-hmm. Just uh, now we, we send letters, we exchange yeah. our views, and the Netherlands government is very, very positive mm-hmm. on possibilities to address all issues, yeah. but doesn 't matter. you know reality always shows something uh, what we can address immediately. Yeah. It means that we need to establish common teams and to guarantee smooth transition mm-hmm. because it's about patient safety. And, about I, and I guess life.
2: that works in both directions because the UK will need to have a system in place as well. Um, how active are they? Have they been in touch with you and with the, yes. the MR to oh, yes, make sure as, they're ready? As,
3: as you know, because UK is very worried about... We have just now discussions with UK members of government, about possibilities to develop more detailed plans, how we will continue our cooperation mm-hmm. it doesn't matter u k will be third country or not, but you know u k has laboratories the u k has their own academic capacities, expertise and so on, and they have a lot of very uh, well educated people who can help us in different specific questions. And we just started to discuss those issues in more detail, how to not uh, create new barriers because uh, we have a lot of common and we need to keep those common on our board.
2: I couldn't agree more. Commissioner Andrew Kaitis, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: And now it's time to speak to Bernard Oul from the European Food Safety Authority. He's the executive director. Welcome to the podcast, Bernard. Thanks, Ryan. Now, it's an interesting, or maybe an exciting week, you tell me. How are you feeling about the new decision from national experts to renew the license for glyphosate, the agriculture weed killer, for five years? Um, that was in line with the scientific advice of your agency, but obviously it's been a very controversial decision. It has been a long
4: discussion and a controversial topic. And with this decision, yes, the risk managers took note and followed uh, the scientific assessment of EFSA and also Euro- the European Chemical Agency. But we are out of this decision making. We deliver the science and then it's in the political sphere. So, from this uh, perspective, I'm neither happy nor unhappy. It's just it happened
2: and. We closed our work already two years ago. Mm -hmm. But you were quite clear in your view in the agency, and and to me I wonder, is this debate a sign that there's a loss of trust in science and institutions like yours, or is it just a sign that science and politics are always going to be mixed up to some extent? I think
4: the interface between uh, science and politics, uh, we say when uh, science meets values, is always a difficult interface. And obviously there are other legitimate interests that politicians have to take on board when they make decisions and that's completely okay. But what we faced over the last two years is that in pursuing a political agenda, the science was brought into doubt. And that is something that we see with big concern.
2: And that brings me to maybe one last point on glyphosate. And I was thinking about the reaction of Emmanuel Macron, where he has said, He's going to use his legal means to phase out the use of glyphosate in France, and that doesn't contradict this EU-level decision. But he used the hashtag, let's make the planet great again, is his mobilizing philosophy, both on this issue, but also on climate change. And I find it very strange, for example, that green-minded people rely on scientists to push the argument that climate change is driven by humans. But then you have scientists who come to such a clear conclusion on this topic and then suddenly the science isn't interesting to them. Yeah, you're right. And, but for me this is an indication that in reality on
4: glyphosate it's not about science. I think what is discussed in reality is the way we do agriculture in Europe, the way we use agrochemicals in Europe, and there are parts of the society that say we don't want this form of agriculture anymore. And I think that's a very legitimate discussion to think what would be a different way of producing food? What would it cost? What would it bring? What would it mean for the environment? What would it mean for the consumers? But this discussion has not really happened in a structured way. And and this is the reason why this discussion always went back to science and said, yeah, but the science is not certain enough. And and I found this mixture between a scientific discussion and a policy discussion very unhelpful for EFSA. Mm -hmm. And then we
2: maybe come back to that earlier question, where the glyphosate debate is merely the outlet for that wider set of concerns, where it could have come through something else, but glyphosate was the way to crack the door open to that much bigger debate. But maybe let's talk about that work of EFSA that you are worried about, because you you don't just think about glyphosate. You've got a much broader range of uh, obligations and concerns. And this week, or this month, it's the 15th anniversary of the law that established your agency. We think of as the EU food law. Tell us a little bit more about what your view is looking back on those 15 years and and what some of your big challenges are coming in the next few years.
4: Yeah, it's true. Uh, We celebrate 15 years of uh, general food law in Europe this week, basically. And as we all know, the general food law, SFs, also are children of the BSE crisis when there was a real breakdown of trust into the whole EU food system and food safety system. And then the EU food law brought a paradigm change in in many aspects, traceability, responsibility of the food business operators, crisis preparedness, and also setting up EFSA. And with the setting up of EFSA, separating very clearly in Europe risk assessment, which is a scientific endeavor, from risk management, which is a political task. And now looking back 15 years, I think there's many reasons to be cheerful. Many things have been accomplished also, but not only because of EFSA. Uh, We can think about, and this has been brought up also in glyphosate, uh, transparency of data, the independence of scientific advice in Europe. I also think EFSA is on the forefront of being transparent and being open and, and securing the independence of scientific advice. And there are also some reasons for concern about the balance we have to strike between increasing demands of society and decreasing resources. Mm-hmm. That
2: is something I think the policy level will have to deal with. And I've read quite a number of claims that the EU can say now that it has the safest food in the world. Is that boasting or, or do you think that's a real legitimate assessment that in issues like the transparency, the EU really is doing more than say, the United States or Canada or Australia, some comparable uh, regions?
4: Yes, I I think without boasting, we can say that we can be proud to have the safest food in the world. And if you look into the success of Europe as a food exporter, that's not only because of the taste and the variety and the quality of the food, it's also because of the safety we export with our food. Mm -hmm. So this uh, 15 years of general
2: food law, I think, is a real success story. And we've seen in some other policy areas because of the EU's weight and because it really is the expert in regulation in a lot of different fields that when the EU sets a standard or a system that others either feel obligated or they just like it and they they copy it, they are inspired by it. Do you see that in the food field as well? Yes, I think Europe is really standard setting on a global level. And if we
4: go to China or to Japan or to Taiwan and talk about the people, they also say, EFSA, you are setting standards also in risk assessment and also in risk assessment methodology making. So I would say, trying not to boast, that EFSA as a small organization with a budget of, you could say, only quote-unquote 80 million euros per year, has achieved a tremendous success over the last 15 years
2: for Europe, but also setting standards globally. Mm -hmm. So 80 million for 28 countries, that really is, you know, that that goes a long way for for what, what you have. Maybe there are also limits to what you can do. And so forgive me if I'm confusing issues here, but one other big debate that is prominent in public discussion now is around the labeling of fat and salt and sugar. And so perhaps that's not a safety issue, but how close does your agency get to those sort of issues or is that completely separated off in another part of the EU?
4: We do work also on nutrition. We did a big work on health claims because with the regulation brought into law in 2006, if you want to put the health claim on the food, you have to have scientific substantiation of the claim. And this is assessed by EFSA, and EFSA has uh, rejected about 80% of the proposed claims. Wow. Can you
2: give me an example or two of, of the ones you rejected? no not Although, no Or the more. claims you don't need to say the brand but what are some of the claims that people make about food that uh, yeah. they couldn't prove
4: yeah you know there is always the tendency to say this food makes you more intelligent more young more beautiful more whatever and if you don't have scientific substantiation for that EFSA so, will give a negative verdict and uh-huh. this is really science-based and again
2: here europe is a world leader to base this ah, and is this claims... the fight around vitamins that we had a few years ago? Is it that sort of fight or was no, that a different one?
4: I, no, I think that's a different one. It's, it's also linked to dairy products, probiotic yogurts, for example, and claims with a link to probiotic uh, yogurts where um, claims were not substantiated enough and EFSA had to give a negative opinion on that. So also here Europe did, uh, I think, a big leap forward by saying, okay, if you want to put something on your food, that's fine. But it needs science as a base and not just uh, marketing. Mm -hmm. So we are working also on nutrition issues, but we are not working on issues like obesity. We are working now on a mandate on sugar. Yes, added sugar. Very interesting also for us. It's a big task. Uh, we were tasked, and, and will there be a
2: report that is the main result of that?
4: Yes, there will be a scientific opinion on the health outcomes of added sugar, but it will take some years to work on it. It's a huge task. We were tasked by five Nordic member states, and we are working on that in a very transparent way uh, uh-huh. to, to produce That's also really
2: interesting from an EU uh, perspective, in terms of how the EU organizes itself. So it's possible for some of your member authorities to fund particular pieces of work. It doesn't just have to come from a central EU budget.
4: Yeah, unfortunately, they don't fund us, but they task us. Yeah. Okay. So, so they can... <laughs> That's the worst of all worlds. Right. Well, uh, <laughs> they fund us via the EU budget. So in a way, we also funded by by the member states. It's, it's money from the member states. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's true that also the member states can give tasks to EFSA and they do it but the main client, so to speak, is the European Commission for us. We mm-hmm. mainly work for DG Santé, but also for the Member States, also the European Parliament can task us.
2: Okay, that's a tough list of tasks. And you're not just working as a global leader in your field. At the moment, EFSA is actually running the EU network of agencies. So there's around about 40 independent agencies, but related um, obviously in the EU system to so the overall objectives of the EU. Tell us a little bit about how that works. And what are the some of the common challenges or some of the things that you can do better when you work with these other agencies? Because they might be looking at things like plant varieties or vocational skills. It's really the, the full range of activities. What has EFSA got in common with them and, and how do you work together? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the EU has uh, set
4: up agencies over the last years to deal with specific tasks, technical tasks, uh, training tasks, policy implementing tasks. And we are now 45 agencies and as they are called joint undertakings and these agencies build a network because we have commonalities with regards to budgeting with regards to staff regulation and what we try now in this network of agencies is to overcome let's say it's by design a difficulty because these agencies are rather small they Mm -hmm. are agile they do a very specific task they can be very innovative they are spread over europe which is good because we can Mm -hmm. be very specific but on the other hand, this uh, rather small size also gives a disadvantage because we cannot use the economies of scale. Mm-hmm. So now what we try to do is to overcome this difficulty by sharing services, by procuring together, by so using
2: like IT back-end services. sort of IT services.
4: Yes, instead. but not only IT; it can be procurement, IT mm-hmm. uh, consultancy services, um, it's, it's audit services. So we really want to overcome these difficulties by building a virtual bigger body by exchanging services, for example. Mm -hmm. So we can save a lot of taxpayers' money by collaborating more intensively, and that we
2: are doing as chairing this agency. Now, a tough question for you that you might not have thought of, though I don't presume anything. But one thing that did come to mind for me, we were looking at the issue of of sexual harassment and and worse, and we saw reports in Sweden of it happening in one agency, and, and we at Politico have had reports in another agency that we haven't been able to publish a story on yet. But as in any large organization, you know, I presume that this happens across all of the ease institutions. It's not specific to agencies. But is an issue like that something that you might also discuss at your annual conferences? Or is that sort of one step beyond what the, the network is able to do?
4: No, no, that's really in the focus of uh, the network. We already discussed this issue via emails. Mm-hmm. And there will be a proposal uh, brought forward specifically by the Gender Equality Agency that is based in Vilnius. Mm -hmm. And uh, there will be a working group. It's about awareness raising. It's about training because here we really have a zero tolerance policy. And of course, we can have this zero tolerance policy, but can we really implement it? Can we make sure that there's no harassment? Mm-hmm. In any way, in the agencies, because this is really completely unacceptable, mm-hmm. so we will work also on the on this topic in the network yes
2: great to hear and one final question: do you feel independence can be a virtue, but do you ever feel stuck on the fringes of the eu system do you ever worry that the commissioner or others aren't listening to you when you have to knock on their door? Is there a disadvantage to the independence as well? Well, I think
4: independence always comes with a price. But we have to be independent. And this was done by design, also after the BSE crisis, to make science independent from policymaking. It's very important. And we defend this independence with all means. Yes, on the other hand, we are a bit remote from, let's call it, the Brussels bubble. And uh, that's not always helpful when it comes to advocacy, when it comes to having a voice, but I think it's a fair price we have to pay for being independent and for delivering good things for public health.
2: Bernadotte, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And back after an unexpected break is the EU Confidential podcast panel, Alva Finn, Lena Rabarus. welcome back.
0: Hi, good morning. Hi,
1: good morning, Brian. Good morning, Elva.
2: I'm so glad to see both of you. And it is going to be a great set of issues we're covering this week. So first, for our EU WTF moment, we're going to turn to glyphosate. Now, it's a known weed killer, but is it going to be killing the prospects of a new German coalition government? Let me fill you in on the background. So after months of arguing where there was a great level of concern about whether this uh, weed killer, glyphosate, would be re-approved for use in the EU. It was difficult for ministers in the Commission to reach any form of majority. They finally reached something called a qualified majority. And then it turns out that the way it happened was that the German agriculture minister went rogue. He, from Angela Merkel's party, defied the instructions of the environment minister from the Social Democrats. Now, remember, these two parties are currently having discussions about whether they can continue in government in Germany. And he just decided he was going to vote to reapprove glyphosate. That vote was the difference. So now it's reapproved for five years, and all hell has broken loose in Germany. What do you reckon?
0: I think it kind of speaks to how interestingly made some decisions... It just edged it over the line. This has been on the EU agenda for, like, months... And so much controversy and just one person's decision can overrule all of this tension and frustration. And, it's, and it's, Emmanuel it's, Macron,
2: they've overruled him. Yeah,
0: it's very, very interesting.
1: Indeed, very interesting because as well the communication between two ministers that they are in the same government, serving the same country, serving the same population, the same citizens, they need to protect their interests. And there was a lack of internal communication, possibly. Was
2: there? I think the environment minister texted the agriculture minister and expressly told him what he was supposed to do. (laughs)
1: Do you believe such a can you imagine such a decision could be dealt with a text message? I mean, where's the protocol? Where's the official Letters. I mean the um, least they could have done was
2: WhatsApp. It. I mean, come on. <laughs> 2017.
0: Well they're yeah, more possibly. hackable though, no?
1: Yeah, maybe with the uh, what's call it called? Emoji
0: next yeah. time. Yeah, like Can big, you that? A, I'm gonna give it a thumbs up.
2: Yeah, emoji confusion. Yeah. And yeah. then like the whole thing goes hey uh,
0: I think yeah, this this I have been uh, at in other international organizations where decisions have been made like this. I remember one where David Cameron was was just calling, but just before a vote on a resolution on Palestine. So yeah, sometimes they go up the track and there is a line, you know, who is actually responsible for these things. And it was the agricultural minister who in the end had the final uh, right to either veto it, abstain, etc. But it just goes to show that, you know, agricultural ministers in this setting were more important than environmental. And isn't that the whole... Because that's that's where the the decision
2: was being taken.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's the crux of the issue. Environmentalists say, well, some environmentalists say that this is a problem. And then farmers say, how are we going to get things done unless we have this?
2: And we have a very interesting, I guess, moral question in a way where it was the legal right of the agriculture minister to do what he did because he's there as a representative and he's individually mandated as the minister to do that but then that is obviously directly in conflict with party loyalties the party system and you get down to that question of what is the basis of democracy is it that this party was elected and he's the vessel of the party and that manifesto or is it down to his individual moral conscience and
0: It's just strange to do in a caretaker government to take something that it has been a huge controversy on the European agenda and just make this decision going against allies like France.
2: And the Greens were the only party that actually wanted to govern with Angela Merkel and yeah. now they're furious that this has happened.
1: So but yeah, what an space. end for it. This behavior must not be repeated, she said. Mm-hmm. Really? Or is this one Such of
2: those things where she secretly wanted it to happen and in this usual kind of cloak and smoke Mm. and mirrors way she allowed someone else to do the bad work but
0: that seems to be like what she said was I broadly agreed with the decision to do that but the party line was to abstain so yeah you might be dead right maybe the agricultural minister just took one for the team and it was actually (laughs) Merkel in the background, seemingly. We'll never know. But I think it's terrible that your environment minister comes out after saying, you know, I gave the direction to abstain. And then all of a sudden, without my knowledge, although it seems that there was a text or something like that, that's not good in the current climate.
2: And what about the industry reaction? I almost forgot. So after this massive controversy where it looked like they wouldn't get any renewal at all they get a five-year renewal and then they put out a statement going it's absolutely terrible we can't believe this has happened and <laughs> yeah, i was like yeah, people I, think, I mean do you really think you're going to get any better than this you you've they maxed never get out enough here.
1: <laughs> they never yeah. get enough you give five they want 10 from they want 20 and we keep going on i mean it's it's part of their lobbying
0: That's, efforts yeah, no yeah it's an interesting public relations approach to that
2: public affairs. now we've also got some great thumbs up moments for the week, a collection of them. Alva, yeah. do you want to kick us off? It's on the theme of mental health this week.
0: I recently read in The Guardian um, a, a very beautiful piece about people who are being de-institutionalized or moved out of psychiatric institutions in Osiak, which is in Croatia, and I was very glad to read about this, but also about the personal experience of what it's like to live in an institution where you have no choice over what you eat, your lives in general, into the community and and you're socially included then. I do a lot of this in my well, this is basically what I do for a living. I advocate for deinstitutionalization, not just for people with mental health problems, but also children, people with disabilities, the homeless, because institutions like this, they institutionalize people and then it, it socially excludes them from the rest of the community. So I was very glad to see that.
2: What made that project different? Is it that it was a big step forward for Croatia or they had a new method that everyone else can learn from?
0: Well, essentially it was a social worker who who ran it, who came back from Austria after having seen how they transitioned people from institutions into the community. And he saw, you know, I've never seen anybody get better in these institutions in Croatia. And then he saw the huge difference it made in people's lives, that they have choice, the kind of choices that you and I make every day about our lives. That's what makes up our lives. But these people were totally denied what they could eat, where they could live, who they could live with. Uh, So it's a huge change. It has been happening across Europe. But what I wanted to say was the European Union actually funds some of these things. And I know that we're going to talk about another EU thumbs up that they, they could also potentially fund. There's massive... Uh, Potential for the EU to fund social inclusion projects. And which which commissioner
2: should be making that decision?
0: Lots of commissioners. We work with Commissioner Tyson. Uh, We also work with DG Regio, uh, who provide structural funds for deinstitutionalisation. But I would say that they're not used enough.
2: Well, Belgians often are motivated by Belgian. Situations and experiences. What's it like in Belgium? Could we prod Commissioner Tyson that way?
0: Well, there's a huge problem with institutionalisation in Belgium, and not just. I think in in recent years, for anybody who knows about institutions, they think it's an Eastern European or a Central European problem. I've just finished a project where we've mapped psychiatric institutions across Europe, and there are literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people living in these kind of environments. And I really, if anybody wants to to have a look at this this article, we might be able to link to it in The Guardian, because it shows you just what a person's life is like when they live in an institution versus what it's like when they live in the community. So yeah, Belgium has a huge problem with institutionalization. So does France, so does Germany. And this is kind of a little bit ignored within the EU. Uh, it's seen, you know, more of a, uh, in, in these countries that are less developed, we can help them. Um, but it's, it's a little bit ignored here.
2: Now, that other Croatian example, this was one I came across, and it shows you how a simple initiative can have a big impact on people's lives. And this is from a Dutch group that effectively buddies up Dutch people with elderly Croatians who live in very isolated and depopulated villages. You know, the sort of places that are dying because they never really had an industry They were maybe propped up by government planning under socialism. And no young people really want to move there. So the elderly people who live in these towns, they don't have support. And this Dutch NGO has really got moving, it provides people with some kind of human interaction, you know, it it helps end loneliness, literally the touch of a hug, for example, you know, these small things that clearly these Dutch people are quite happy to have a weekend away in, in a nice warm Croatian environment. And it really changes the lives of these people who are alone in these villages.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show you that the EU, for all its benefits, sometimes hasn't really touched the lives of people who live in these very rural, socially excluded areas, particularly people who are in vulnerable situations. That was such a beautiful piece that I read. You know, a lot of these older people had been through not one but two wars uh, and now were totally socially isolated because their children had moved away, they'd moved... Across Europe, so it's important I think to look at these kind of people and see how, for example, the next multi-financial framework can reach out to people like these older people in in Croatia and make sure that they have the benefit of being European citizens as well.
2: Now. I wanted to bring you in, Lena, as well. You were very excited by one art exhibition I came across. Mm-hmm. So it's our third mental health related issue.
1: Too many thumbs up today. <laughs> no, That's it's good. Beautiful. It's good. We That's had beautiful. we had one
2: person on Twitter complaining that we don't do enough positive stuff on the podcast. Oh. So here are three thumbs up for you. And this was about an exhibition that is taking place in support of the people who care for those people who have mental illnesses and conditions. And it's happening at a place called the Psych Art Gallery in Skarbake mm-hmm. in Brussels. And there are 38 artists showing there. Mm-hmm. And when we said, oh, we might talk about it on the podcast, the people organizing the exhibition, they were so yeah. overwhelmed with happiness in that email. And I just thought, wow, like it must be such an isolating experience mm-hmm. to be a carer. You're often unpaid or underpaid you're often ignored, you're often traumatized by the work you have to do with the person that you're looking after. And to be so excited about getting a mention on the podcast, I think it says much more about what that experience of being a carer is than, than the podcast itself, frankly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially that they are a small group, it's a personal initiative, they are not very well known, they don't have a big PR campaign and big organizations behind them. So really thumbs up that they have the, the will, the courage, the determination to pull together this, uh, this exhibition and uh, shed some light on on people with with disabilities, that they still have all these capacities to do wonderful artwork. And uh, I encourage, I think, everyone that's listening today to to our podcast to go and participate, and especially that they have the funds, the revenues will will be helping uh, the people with with disabilities. So big thumbs up, and we should help the small efforts and the big efforts within, within the EU, not only the big gigantic ones. So thumbs up.
2: Excellent. And so if you go back to where you found this podcast, be it SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the email that we sent out, we'll provide the link so that you can okay. learn more about these stories. And now it's time to turn to our Dear Politico advice section. We've got a very good question this week, and I'll get straight into it. Dear Politico, in 2009, I passed the EU civil service exams. They're highly competitive and cost a lot of money and time to run and to participate in. Since then, I have never even been invited to an interview, and now I found out they are closing the candidate list I qualified for. They never even told us, I only found out by checking the website. There is a total lack of transparency of how they decide and when they decide to cancel these lists. There are persons like me who invested time and work at national level in implementation of EU policies. It is not possible that a public institution could behave like this. What's your reaction, Lena?
1: Of course, it's not possible to keep a public institution behave like this. And it's great that this lady wrote you, so we can talk about it. But I'm sure there are thousands and thousands of citizens and Europeans that are trying to get in the institutions, and they they have no clue. I have friends that they lock themselves for six months studying and trying to understand this super complicated exam to, to get in the institution. It's something that I think as well Member States should discuss, not only in Brussels and not, not only in the institutions from the HR and their policies. They need to, to change it. Mm-hmm. And plus
2: But what about her getting thrown off the list? Is that okay?
1: Of course it's not okay. And she should write and understand why she was thrown out of the list and what were their criteria on that. And write them officially and make these documents public because they you are entitled to know why is it because I'm not qualified enough? Is it because my language skills were not good? Is it my uh, critical thinking? I mean, sh- but, but it's sh- not about
2: sh- her. It's about the whole list. The whole list. shutting the list exactly. down. And it's the- been eight years. So eight years long enough to find a job.
0: Yeah, so what I think is that I've done quite a number of these kind of civil servant exams. I also have done a concours. So I have every sympathy for <laughs> how much work you put into it. Uh, I didn't put in that much work, and did you I did I did. I did pass, but I didn't get through to the next stage. But I was working uh, at the time. But yes, if you want to to, to do well in these, unless you're, a, I don't know, a savant, you have to to really put in a lot of effort. Uh, I know that that the average, apparently, that people have to spend in order to get on to get through to the next phase is ten hours a week. In the six months preceding so people really and it, it is like you you get into a kind of great position you have amazing benefits you yeah. don't have to pay tax all of these kinds. Of, there's so many benefits you pay but some tax so it's, it's not as much yeah, as sorry as, that <laughs> that's true yeah, it's it's very difficult. And then when you get onto the list, apparently there's a lot of lobbying that needs to be done behind that. Even if you're, so you a, can't just go to a
2: website, check out the vacancies, and then apply.
0: Yeah, you kind of have to go go, go around. Lo- well, this is what I hear. I've obviously never gotten onto the list, so. Uh, but yeah, it's very frustrating. What I will say is that I know that you know once you're on one of these lists, you don't stay on them forever. I would have imagined that it was very transparent. I think that everybody who who gets onto these lists knows they have a, a finite amount of time mm-hmm. to get a job. I'm sorry that you had to wait for so long, uh, but I do think if they put it up on the website, it I don't think it's actually... For example, the, the time that I did it, 36,000 people applied for the same Concord that I did, and then however many get through in the end. Uh, if they have to keep yeah. telling all of those people I and think some of them are
2: very specific. Yeah. So yeah. what we don't know from this problem is exactly which Concours was she passed. But it could be something very specific, like linguist editor, mm. fraud prevention officer, mm. junior economist, something like or that.
1: the competition is so high as well
2: mm-hmm. on, on these things. Yeah. And so maybe the needs change, and now there's no longer a need for those people. Or After this person changes. could be from the wrong country, where mm. it's kind of... No one likes to talk about this in the EU system, but there's kind of unofficial quotas. They do yeah, try and get new much. member states who join at particular moments. They try and get a bunch of people from that country in. Once those people are in, there's no need for any more of them because the kind of fairness situation has been addressed. Yeah, and then they need to kick people out.
1: Yeah. That's a beautiful. I hope you have a great job and you found something more interesting and uh, less uh, complicated than the institutions and more transparent.
2: Mm-hmm. And one last question. Should she fight it? Should she just seek an explanation, or should she actually go out and fight it to the ombudsman y- or somebody like that? Yes,
1: yes, indeed, of course. If, if she would like to change things for the next uh, 37,000 possibly people who, who engage
0: in, in one concours, of course, why not? Alba? Yeah, I think there's, there are, there's actually a lot of people who have taken cases against the EU for their how they hire people. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure in this case if you, have, if you have a case or not. I've
2: got one recent case. I just remembered this is I'm so excited. You could hear it in my voice. It just went <laughs> up three notches. Um, there was a situation where the EU provided the wrong keyboards to yes. a bunch of people. And so then what they did, instead of allowing this person to resit the exam, They then discounted all of the spelling mistakes that the people made of all people on all key points and said that spelling and grammar didn't matter in the exam. And the ombudsman had a few things to say.
0: Divine. But it is, it's true. These things are such high pressure. Yeah, I I remember when I did it, they have these... Centres all around uh, Europe. I went to one in Geneva, uh, in the middle of nowhere. You have to bring your ID. If you don't bring your ID, you're not allowed to do the exam. And then you sit there, and yeah, in, in that scenario where you need to write in a few different languages, it's very important to have the keyboard that you you want because you have almost no time to do it. So I, I completely empathise with people who who go into an exam and they're like, "Oh, there's a QWERTY instead of an assertion." That would We're freak not. me out okay. after all the work. Hashtag you put in.
2: first world problems doesn't even fit here. We need some other special thing. Thing, like hashtag it, Euro it's a
0: very individual problem for people who have. it's watched, a real problem i'm yeah, not trying to minimize it who have, have gone through a concord yeah a very
2: very niche and specific yeah. well thank you very much for that advice that's all we've got time for on this episode of eu confidential thanks for listening and please remember to rate review or subscribe to the podcast so you have a better experience and we can grow the community a big shout out to our podcasting team rosie belson andrew gray and Wade on with